Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and this is Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Well, today we're continuing our series, Make It Count, with a message titled, Faithfulness in Unfaithful Times. So turning your Bibles to 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 9 to 13, as we join Dr. Newfeld now. Most people simply follow the cultural trends of the times in which they're living. I mean, they assume their culture has it right, the other cultures had it wrong. It's just the nature of things. And when the culture says that women should stay at home and have kids and their husbands should bring home the bacon, that, they assume, that's the way to live. And when the culture says that marriage is not the ideal, that women staying home is a form of oppression, well, they simply assume that now is correct. I mean, most people learn the arguments that are popular in their culture. They repeat them, they believe them, and they urge others to do the same. It's just one of the marks of being human. Most people follow the trends, they're followers. Of course, trends change. In our day, we're constantly reminded of that. Whether it's gender issues or sexuality issues or monetary issues or family issues, all of these things are in flux, ready to be changed when the spirit of the day changes. But regardless of what changes in lifestyle or morality that the spirit of the day brings, some things remain. You know, in the previous section of 2 Timothy, that is in chapter 3, verses 1 to 9, Paul says that in the last days there will be people who are lovers of self and also lovers of pleasure. That is, people will have as their first goal, as their priority in life, receiving pleasure for themselves. And for that reason, they will love money and be proud and slanderous of others who get in their way and swollen with conceit. Paul says it'll be a sign of the last age before Jesus returns. That is, from the time of the first and second coming of Jesus, that's going to be a marker of this era. But believers in Jesus, as 1 Peter 2 verse 9 reminds us, well, we're called out of darkness into his marvelous light. And the mark of a believer is to be that he or she does not follow the trends, whatever the flavor of the day happens to be, and our old self or our old nature has been crucified with Jesus, we're buried with Christ into baptism, and we're raised with him into newness of life. Now, of course, having said that, let me take note of two important things. You know, first, no believer in Jesus is sinless. We know that. The old nature and the old love of self, well, it keeps popping up its head and wanting to reassert its old dominance. And so every believer will know times when not only is the love of self and the love of pleasure the value of the age, but when these same impoverished values exhibit themselves in us. At such times, the Holy Spirit brings about an awareness of sin, the need for heartfelt repentance, and the desire to be revived and renewed. Well, the other important thing to remember is that not all who call themselves believers in Jesus are. See, Paul spoke of those people who were imposters and also corrupted in mind and disqualified concerning the faith. That is, in spite of their claims to have faith in Christ, they don't have saving faith in Christ. These words are very similar to what Paul wrote Titus, Titus 1.16. They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. Now, in the section we're about to study, Paul now contrasts that very sober picture of the lover of self with the life of Christ. And he uses himself as an example. So let's read now 2 Timothy chapter 3, 10 to 13. You, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra. 
which persecutions I endured, yet from them all the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil people and impostors will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. So let me try to restate the beginning of this paragraph. Paul is saying to Timothy, look, Timothy, the thing that marks you as different from the character description that I've given of the deceivers who love themselves is that you took interest in my teaching, which came from Christ. That is, Timothy knew the difference between what he saw in Paul and what he saw in the imposters. You remember, I started with the illustration that, you know, people follow the cultural trends in values and ethics and in morals, in what they hope for and dream about. And in that regard, we all have heroes and we all have people we emulate. Some make heroes of their sports stars or movie stars. Some emulate their parents and older siblings, some their teachers. Others just love the cultural elites. And Timothy recognized Paul was a man of God and he wanted to emulate him. And when he did, notice the things he emulated. They're remarkable. You know, we're left with a list of nine items and actually we can group them. The first seven are what we would call traits of active obedience. That is, in order to be obedient, Timothy must commit himself to pursuing these things. And the last two things he emulated are matters of passive obedience. That is, he must submit to these matters. Now, we'll consider all nine of these items. And when it comes to the first seven items, that is, the matters of active obedience, you're going to notice that the first three items are progressive. That is, one leads to the next, and then the last four items are the conclusion of the matter. So, Let's start with the first thing that Timothy emulated in Paul. He followed Paul's teaching. Now, we might argue that is the logical place to begin. I mean, why is that? Well, let's go back to where these two men first encountered each other. Luke describes it in Acts 16, verse 1. This occurs during Paul's second missionary journey, and Luke says, Paul came also to Derbe and Lystra, and a disciple was there named Timothy. Now, By calling Timothy a disciple, Luke is indicating he's a disciple of Jesus. That is, when Paul arrived in Lystra, by this time, the second time he was there, and he begins to minister to the people there, Timothy was already not only a follower of Jesus, but Luke also tells us that he already had quite a reputation for being a faithful follower of Jesus. But how did Timothy come to the Lord? Well, Paul has already told us that Timothy's mom and his grandmother They were faithful and observant Jews, but how did Timothy come to Jesus? We know that Paul first arrived in Lystra during his first missionary journey, and it was in Lystra where Paul was speaking, and one of the men listening to him at that time was a crippled man, crippled from birth. And Paul became aware, no doubt by the Holy Spirit, that this crippled man believed what Paul was teaching and that he had faith that Jesus would also heal him. And Paul had looked intently at the man, and then he said in a loud voice, stand upright on your feet. And the man did, and he was instantly healed. From that moment on, pandemonium broke out in that city. Because it was a pagan city, the crowds became convinced that Barnabas and Paul were the gods Zeus and Hermes, and they wanted to sacrifice to them. And eventually, Paul would speak, and he'd try to convince the crowd that they were only human and had been sent by the one true God to turn these people away from the myths that they had embraced. And eventually, then some of the Jewish opponents from the cities of Antioch and Iconium showed up, and they enraged the crowd, and they stoned Paul and left him for dead. And I'm trying to say here that there can be little doubt that on that day, 
When Paul first preached about Jesus in Lystra, when the cripple was there, young Timothy was also sitting in the crowd listening to him preach. No doubt his mom and dad were probably there along with his grandmother. No doubt also they discussed what had happened on that day. But whatever that was all about, it seems rather obvious that Timothy was led to Christ by hearing Paul preach on that day in Lystra. And that was the place of beginning. Timothy followed Paul's teaching so that when Paul showed up in Lystra for the second time, it was then that Paul wanted to take Timothy with him as a trainee and an assistant. And Timothy was delighted. He had already come to the conclusion that what Paul taught, that was the truth. And so that's where the emulation began. Timothy was convinced by Paul's teaching. Now, Paul adds a second area. Timothy also observed and followed Paul's conduct. So let's go back to what happened at Lystra. You know, when the crowd was chanting about Barnabas and Paul, that the gods had come to them in human form, well, people who loved themselves and were swollen with conceit, they would have used that opportunity for their benefit. I mean, if there ever was an opportunity for fame and maybe even getting some money out of this, well, that was now. But that's not how Paul and Barnabas accepted the challenge. The two men tore their garments and they shouted, men, why are you doing this stuff? Stop, we're not gods. We're men of the same nature as the rest of you. And Timothy watched that. He saw in Paul a commitment to the truth and a willingness to forsake fame and fortune, take the road of humility. By the way, Timothy did learn that lesson from Paul. I mean, listen to what Paul writes the Corinthian church. I'm quoting 1 Corinthians 4, verse 17. That is why I sent you, Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ as I teach him everywhere in every church. I mean, Timothy had seen Paul's lifestyle and he could emulate it. It's one thing to be a lover of self and a lover of pleasure, one who is swollen with conceit, and it's quite another thing to put one's own needs and desires behind the obedience that comes out of trusting Christ. And here's what we know about Paul's ministry. No Learjets, no mansions, no exorbitant salaries. In fact, in 2 Corinthians 11:25, he says he was shipwrecked three times. The reason for that seems obvious. The only ship he had the money to get on were the old wrecks, and those things sank constantly. That was Paul's way of life. Each month, we send out a free monthly update email that provides unique ministry content that includes our 5 and 5 audio program. Five questions in five minutes in conversation with those intimately involved in the mission and vision of Back to the Bible Canada. The email also includes advanced resource offers, insight into current and future programming, and the ways that you can be involved. The ministry update email is available simply by subscribing online at backtothebible.ca or call us at 1-800-663-2425. In the ministry update email in February, expect to hear more information about our international ministries and the unique impact that is being made in the world with Back to the Bible Canada programs, resources, and conferences. For more information or to send your gift, visit backtothebible.ca or call us at 1-800-663-2425. Timothy had noticed two things. He noticed what Paul taught, and he noticed how Paul lived, his way of life. And Timothy had taken this matter to heart. And what he had seen in his mentor, he now practiced in his own life. He lived in the same fashion. 
The next item Paul mentions is his aim in life. You know, it's fascinating to find out how many people go through life without having an overarching aim. Well, perhaps they've never thought it through, or perhaps they have, and have considered the price that was needed to be paid for having an aim in life, and it was just too high. Now, there's a story told of a piano maestro who, after he had finished an evening in a concert hall, was told by an adoring fan, oh, I wish I could play like you. Now, the maestro said, do you really? Well, perhaps you can. You'll require at least 10 to 12 hours of practice every single day. You'll have to spend that time alone. And when others give themselves to getting together with friends at parties, you won't be there. You're going to be alone. You're going to be practicing, going over the same drills over and over and over to the point where your heart will seem like it's breaking. But if you pay that price, you'll be able to play like me. So I ask you, you want to play like me? Well, that's the question for all who have an aim in life. Or to put it another way, who have a passion. I mean, one thing in which they would be willing to invest their entire lives. Now, when it came to Paul, what was his aim? You know, part of that answer is found in Romans 15, 19, and 20, where he says, that from Jerusalem and all the way around to Elyra come, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ, and thus, watch this, I make it my ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation. That is, his aim in life is to bring the gospel to one unreached city after another, building churches where the gospel had never been heard. Now, I say that's part of the answer because the entire answer is broader than that. So if we go forward to 2 Timothy 4 verse 2, we're going to hear Paul admonishing Timothy to preach the word, but then go back to 2 Timothy 2.15. There we heard Paul tell Timothy to do your best to present yourself to God as one approved a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. Paul not only received his gospel as a direct revelation from Jesus, but he also poured over the scripture, examining every single chapter and verse, explaining it in the light of Jesus. So, for instance, consider what Luke tells us in Acts 18, verse 5. And Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia. Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. You notice the two things. The second, he's testifying, in this case, to the Jews, other times to the Gentiles, that Jesus is the long-expected Messiah. But the first thing was that he's not relying on his ability to communicate or to say things based on his easy wit or his excellent use of illustrations or the use of stories designed to impact the emotions. Instead, he's occupied or so thoroughly engaged with the word, he's got no time for other pursuits. Timothy had seen Paul's singular interest or his aim, his overarching purpose in life to which Paul would gladly suffer the loss of lesser things if those lesser things at any point in time interfered with the aim of his life. And Timothy grabbed a hold of that lifestyle, that way of living, to live in such a way that it could be said of Timothy, just like his mentor, there was an overriding aim in his life. Hey, how about you? Oh, my dear friend, this is an important question to ask. For if you have no aim in life, your life has no overarching meaning. Did you see that? You can't answer the question of why you're here. And aimlessness leads to deep inner turmoil and eventually the lack of satisfaction within. And it leads us to try to cover up our pain by seeking pleasure. We become lovers of self. So very well. Timothy has emulated three important features in Paul's life. 
And the next four items, they just go together. They're faith and patience, love and steadfastness. And I I say those four belong together because they are part of one package. See, faith refers to Paul's trust in God as he pursues his aim. Patience has also been translated as long-suffering, meaning that as Paul works with people and teaching them the gospel, he's willing to give them the kind of time they need to digest what he's been teaching. And love is his love for the people that he's teaching, and steadfastness is the quality of not giving up, no matter how tough these things are becoming. It's making the sacrifice necessary to realize the aim in life. Now then, Paul comes to the point where he can talk about those passive attributes. Remember up to now, we've looked at active attributes, I mean, those things that Paul is striving to obtain. But now there are two attributes that he must submit himself to. And here he mentions only two. In essence, they're actually one. They're persecutions and sufferings. I mean, persecutions are what others do to you, and suffering is what you actually experience. In short, Paul wants to let Timothy know that he did not run from these things. He, he remained put. He patiently endured what God, in his sovereignty, had judged best for Paul to endure. And here Paul reminds Timothy, most likely, of the things that Timothy must have remembered. Do you remember, says Paul, how I was called upon to endure what happened, first in Syrian Antioch, then Iconium, and then finally in Lystra? Do you remember, Timothy? Of course, Timothy remembered. He had come to Christ during that time. So a little refresher. Paul arrived in Syrian Antioch, preached effectively there. Then the leadership of the synagogue, jealous of his results, organized a protest. They drove him out of the district. Then he came to Iconium, where again, the local synagogue leadership, well, they succeeded in making an attempt to either beat or kill him, so he was forced to leave for Lystra. And it was there in Lystra, Timothy's hometown, where Timothy heard Paul preach for the first time. And of course, as Timothy knew so well, in the end, the mob at Lystra had stoned Paul, and then thinking he was dead, they dragged what they assumed to be his lifeless body outside the city gates. Of course, he wasn't dead. He was knocked out. Well, no doubt, Paul, after that, bore scars of that event on his body, perhaps even on his face. They were the leftovers from the event. Paul probably also suffered from the effects of a concussion. It restricted his ability to see for a time. Now, of course, Timothy remembered that. I mean, perhaps he was horrified by what had happened. But perhaps also something of the courage of Paul was also remembered. Timothy might also now, as he read these words, be thinking about Paul's words at the beginning of this very letter. 2 Timothy 1.7, for God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power, love, and self-control. Not of fear, but of power. Not timidity, but the ability to go forward even when people are threatening his life. But then at the end of verse 11, Paul says, but the Lord rescued me. And then as Paul thinks about this, he makes three concluding statements. The first is that all who live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Now, please understand that Paul's not stating that they will all be persecuted as he was. Paul doesn't indicate the intensity of the persecution, only that at some level it will always be there for every genuine believer. In some times and circumstances, look, it won't be life-threatening, but in other times and places it might be. Either way, the opposition is there. I mean, think of what Peter said about this. In 1 Peter chapter 4, Peter speaks about those who live in sensuality. They go to drinking parties and they indulge in sexual orgies. And then in 1 Peter 4, verse 4, he says, with respect to this, 
They're surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you. Yeah, they malign you because if you don't participate with them, which is what the culture at that time considered normal and appropriate, if you don't agree with the cultural norms, the response is to utterly marginalize you, make you the subject of mockery, and even warn others about the behavior that you have. Now, add to that a zeal for telling everyone the gospel, and you get the picture. People will make you suffer for that. The second thing that Paul says is that it's not going to get any better. Evil people, imposters, and here I think he means false Christians, will go from bad to worse. Look, they're going to lie, and they're going to be lied to. That is to say, don't think that at some time in the future, the human race is going to be so enlightened, that kind of thing isn't going to happen anymore. It is. But then in verse 14, Paul adds a third conclusion, and the verse begins, but as for you, Timothy, that is, just like Paul, his teaching, his conduct, his aim, his faith, patience, love, and steadfastness, let all these, he says, mark your life as different from the lives of other people. Same is true for us today. Believers in Jesus are called upon to reject the values of our culture and to embrace the life of Jesus. And I'm not saying that all the values of our culture are always of necessity wrong. But the aim of any culture outside of Christ is not the glory of the cross, not to give honor and praise to God. And just so happens to be that all cultures love themselves first. And when we encounter Christ, that changes. It was one self-love. It's now love of Christ. Thanks so much, John. John, you know, I've had this conversation with a few young people recently, I think. But can I ask you, if we align ourselves too much with the culture around us, are we at risk of being out of line with Jesus? Yeah, I think we always will be, no matter which culture we find ourselves in. So important to say, I mean, of course, there was a time in which, you know, wider Canadian, American, North American culture, you know, was uh, at least informed by the Christian value base. But they still were not a people who were born again so that, you know, they were perhaps legalistic and uh, viewed themselves as uh, works righteousness people. So we had to stand against that culture. Now it's entirely different. And we again have to distinguish ourselves from the culture in which we live. It'll be different, but it'll always be that we will stand alone with Christ. Thanks, John. And remember to join us again tomorrow as we continue our series, Make It Count, right here on Back to the Bible Canada, Bible teaching you can trust. As time speeds by, it's even more important that we consider how we live. That's why I'm so grateful for friends like you who walk with us verse by verse through the Bible. The encouragement we received recently from Ruth reminds us of how precious this is. Dr. John's teachings are fascinating and really bring the Bible to life for me. I can almost visualize the scenes in my mind, like watching a movie when I listen to him. I usually listen to the radio program at work and end up going home and rereading the passage he spoke about that day, and every time I see it through different eyes. What a great way to use the time we've been given. With minds transformed by the washing of God's Word, we're given different eyes and God's own heart to see the world we live in. If you'd like to support the ministries of Back to the Bible Canada, visit backtothebible.ca 
or call us at 1-800-663-2425.